The book of Mark chronicles the last three years of Jesus here on earth. They were pretty intense years, to say the least. Since meeting John the Baptist, he was faced with temptations in the desert, performed miracles, healed people, gained followers, was transfigured and died a criminal's death, only to be raised from the dead. Why should all this matter to you and me? Join us for the last three. Amen. You know, I, uh, I was reflecting while we were worshiping together and thinking about the promises of God for those of us in the room and, and also for you online as you join us uh, in worship this evening. That's the beauty of technology is for those of you online, you're, you're here with us. We're worshiping together. We do believe that there's something powerful about being in the room, but we're grateful that you're here to be with us this evening online as well. But there's a promise that we're given in Scripture, which is when we are gathered together as God's people, when two or more are gathered, uh, God is uniquely present with us. You see, that's something we should not take lightly. Our faith is not an individual pursuit. It is a community exercise. We are, we're built into the body of Christ through faith. And so when we gather as God's people, not just on Expectation Sunday, but every Sunday, we should come expectant because we believe the promises of God. We believe that he will be in the room with us. The spirit is alive and active. And I hope tonight you sensed it. Whether you have been a Christian for a long time, whether you've been a Christian for a few years, a few months, or whether you're here tonight and searching, that you sense that something is different about the gathering of God's people when we're here together. And so we believe that not only through song, through prayer, but also through the reading of God's word, that God speaks to us as a community, but he speaks to each and every one of us individually as well. So my prayer is that as we look at God's word tonight, as we engage in an exercise in a moment afterwards, is that you would believe that God is going to speak to you in just the way that you need. He's going to reveal exactly what you need to hear as encouragement, as truth, or as challenge. And so if you have our app, I want to encourage you to open it because at the end, there's going to be some questions that you're going to need. They're only going to be found there. And so if you have not downloaded it, it's Crossbridge Brickle in the App Store. Download it, open it up, click on the Notes tab, and follow along with us this evening. We're in Mark chapter 6, so if you have your Bible, you can also turn there as well. Just the first six verses of Mark 6, and this is episode 6 of our series, The Last Three. I want to read the passage first, and then we're going to jump in together. Here's what God's Word says to us in Mark chapter 6. He went away from there and came to his hometown. This is Jesus. And his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, and on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty works there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. So I want to jump right into the passage this evening. Jesus has, his public ministry is on full display. He has been preaching. He has been teaching. He has been healing people. He has calmed a storm with his disciples. He has cast out demons. He has made lame people walk. His ministry has become well known now in the region. So not just in the region of the Sea of Galilee, but also extending all the way to Jerusalem. We talked a couple weeks ago about how it's reached the ears of the spiritual leaders of his day, the, the Pharisees, and they actually sent people from Jerusalem to the region of the Sea of Galilee where Jesus is doing his ministry at this moment to discredit him because he's viewed as a threat. So Jesus is well known. There's fame now associated with him. And there's a lot of different opinions about who Jesus is. Some people just see Jesus as a miracle worker. Some people see Jesus as a rabbi, as a teacher. Some people believe that he's the son of God. And other people see Jesus as a threat. And so all of this is taking place. And then we read in Mark 6 that he goes back to his hometown, which is the town of Nazareth. Now, Jesus was not born in Nazareth. He was born in Bethlehem because Mary and Joseph were forced to leave their hometown, Nazareth, and travel to Bethlehem to register for a census. That's why Jesus is born in Bethlehem, the city of David. And yet, Jesus is not raised in Bethlehem. He's raised in the city of Nazareth, in the region of the Sea of Galilee. And so he's returning home and as I said, he's well-known, he's famous. There's all these things that he is doing. He has a following now. He has 12 disciples with him. And you would expect a celebratory homecoming. That as he gets home, there's going to be a party. There's going to be a celebration. Jesus has returned. He is the fame of our little city of Nazareth. Almost like when a sports team wins a championship. And then they go back to their city and have a parade. Or when a small town has a resident that accomplishes something great in the world, when they go back home, they get the keys to the city. Or they have a day named after them. You would expect this to be the case as Jesus returns with a crowd and with his disciples. So he gets back into Nazareth, and it says he goes to the synagogue. He goes to uh, the place where everybody would gather for all different types of things, but certainly to gather around God's word and to pray and to hear rabbis, teachers, teach on God's word and God's truth and his promises. And so Jesus begins to teach. And at first, they are astonished. They're amazed at what he is saying and the way that he's expounding the scriptures. He's reading from the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. He's expounding it. He's teaching upon it. And they're amazed at what he's saying. They ask questions. What is his source? How does he have the power that we've heard about performing these miracles? Where did he receive this type of wisdom? So this is all taking place. You're like, maybe this is building. The, the, the homecoming is happening. The celebration is about to incur. And then we read verse 3. Verse 3 is an accusation. Here's what it says. Mark 6, verse 3. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. So they're astonished at Jesus' teaching, at the, the power that he has displayed, and the miracles that he has performed, and the wisdom that is coming from his lips. 
and yet they give two accusations of Jesus. The first accusation has to do with his previous vocation and his education. So they, first, they, they, they take a moment and say, wait, wait, this is Jesus. We know Jesus. Is this not the carpenter? Here's what it, the translation is. Is he not a manual laborer? You see, Jesus is sitting in the seat of authority. He's identified as a rabbi, as a teacher, and yet they're questioning him because he did not receive the proper education. He did not follow the traditional methods and the tr traditional route to becoming a rabbi. He's not from the right family. He wasn't schooled in the right way. He's a carpenter. And so their accusation of Jesus is, wait, 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 can we really listen to him? I mean, what's his source? How did he get wisdom? I mean, where's this power from? Because he's a manual laborer. He's not well-educated. I don't know if we should receive this. So they reject him because of his education and because of his vocation. And then they give the second accusation. The second accusation has to do with his family's reputation. You see, in the statement there, it says, Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary? Now, this is important because this is an uncommon identification. And in ancient times, children were always identified by their father. And so here, the, the crowd or the people that are accusing Jesus of, one, being a manual laborer, how can we listen to him? Then they say, he's the son of Mary. They don't include Joseph. You see, this town, Nazareth, as I said, is small. Like 500 people small. It's built out of the side of a hillside, a rocky hillside. And through excavation, we know that this town was about 60 acres. To put that in perspective, for those of us here in Miami, Brickle Key is 44 acres. So it's a little bit bigger than Brickle Key. Not big at all. So everyone knows each other. Everyone knows each other's business. They know their families really well. And they know Jesus. And they know his mom. They know his brothers and sisters, and they know Joseph. You see, what we read from this is that for over 30 years now, the city has held an opinion of Jesus and his family, and in particular, his mom. If you remember in the Christmas story, in the birth of Jesus, Mary conceived of the Holy Spirit, but she conceived before Mary and Joseph were married. And, it, and Joseph, actually, when he hears about the fact that Mary has conceived, she, Joseph has not learned yet that it was from the Holy Spirit. And so it says that he wants to divorce her quietly. But then the angel of the Lord appears to Joseph and tells Joseph that it is, in fact, true. The Son of God is within Mary's womb, conceived with the Spirit. And so they stay together. But see, obviously, Nazareth does not believe this narrative. They believe that Jesus was an illegitimate child, that she was an adulteress. Because she had a child either with Joseph or most likely with somebody else before they were married. So this reputation is hanging over Jesus and his family. Shame and outcasting of sorts. And so what they're saying here is, wait, wait. He's teaching. He has wisdom. He's declaring authoritatively. He has these followers. He's, he's gaining fame for the miracles that he's doing. But we can't listen to him. He's a manual laborer and his mother is an adulteress. These are the accusations labeled at Jesus. It's interesting that his identity in this community, in his hometown, is set 
by the spiritual leaders of society, the power brokers of society, and the influencers of society. There in the synagogue, those people stand up and they say, wait, 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 we, we have to discredit him. There's no celebratory homecoming for Jesus. We know his education, we know his vocation, we know his family, and we know his social status, which is not accepted. There's no way he could be a rabbi. There's no way he could be the son of God. And so they reject him. And that's shocking because Nazareth had a slogan which was, was famous in the region. And we know this from other sources, even outside of the Bible. And that is that nothing good comes from Nazareth. So Jesus is not even good enough in their eyes to be accepted because of his vocation, education, social status, and his family. They take offense at him. That's a very interesting word. It says that they took offense. Now, in the Greek, that word is scandalon. That means he scandalized them. It's where we get the word scandalize or scandal. So Jesus was a scandal to them. What it really is saying is that he embarrassed them. They were ashamed of him. And this same word is actually used in construction. It was used to, to kind of represent the concept that builders, when they would go build a house, they would observe all the stones and they would look for stones that had great strength or of great quality. And if stones had cracks in them, they had flaws in them, they took offense, they were scandalized, and they were rejected. He said, it makes me think of Michelangelo. Famously, he would go to the rock quarries and he would look at the marble and he would make sure that the marble he chose for his statues was perfect. No flaws, no cracks. And this was true in ancient times as well as builders. They would make sure that the stones that they accepted were flawless, that they fit their standards. And so what it's saying here is that Jesus did not fit their standards. He had too many flaws and cracks in who he was and the way that they viewed him because they put him within these parameters. His family wasn't right. His education wasn't right. His previous vocation wasn't right. And certainly his social status was not right. And so they rejected him. I want to ask you a question because I want us to process together as God's word speaks to us. How do you view yourself? I think that's a really important question for all of us to ask. How do you view yourself? Because many of us, we view ourselves through the lens of other people. It's what other people say. It's the parameters that they've placed us in. It's the labels they've given us. It's the positions that they've allowed us into or kept us from. And so many of us struggle with looking at ourselves and viewing ourselves from a place of rejection. Because we didn't have the right education, we don't have the right job, our social status wasn't right because of our family. So we struggle with identity, and we struggle with security, and we fear rejection because we've experienced rejection. And here's the thing that's true. I know this for a fact. Everyone in this room has been rejected. In one way, you have been rejected. In some shape or form, you have been rejected. Because what is rejection? It is just the sense of feeling unwanted. And every one of us in this room wants to be wanted. We want to experience love from family, from friends, from a spouse, romantic love. We want to experience love from a mentor, from a teacher. We want our boss to see us and see our strengths and accept us. We want our company to accept us. We want a community where we can receive love. But life has a way, oftentimes, of delivering the opposite, of breaking our expectations, 
of providing rejection when we want acceptance. And so we struggle with feeling unwanted. And all of us, as I said, have been rejected in one way or another. We've faced this. So maybe you struggle with parental rejection. You struggle with feeling like you've never been genuinely loved by your parents. You're not what they expected. You feel like you're a disappointment, that you can't measure up, and that you have to work really hard to prove to your parents that they will, that they love you, to earn their love, to earn their acceptance, and you struggle with that sense of feeling rejected by your parents. Maybe you struggle with spousal rejection. You look at your relationship and you think, feels as if love is lost or misguided. That the acceptance that I felt at the altar feels like it's way in the rearview mirror. I don't feel that sense of acceptance anymore. The love seems to have changed and maybe you attribute it to trauma in your relationship or mistakes that you made or your spouse made. And so the dynamic of love has changed now and you don't feel accepted, you feel rejected in many ways. Or maybe you feel rejected by romantic, in a romantic way, romantic rejection. You think to yourself and you pray all the time, God, the only thing I desire more than anything is a consistent and committed romantic relationship. I want to find my spouse. I want to get married. But you struggle because date after date and relationship after relationship, you walk away feeling unwanted, rejected. Maybe it's social rejection, that you desire deep friendships. Maybe you're at the point where you're like, I just want one, just one deep friend where the amount of energy and time and prayer and attention that I'm giving to them that they give back to me. I don't want to feel like I'm giving everything and I'm receiving nothing in return. And you struggle because you feel passed over. You feel like you're uninvited or just ignored for certain invitations. You're overlooked. You're not really a part of the group. Struggle with social rejection. Maybe it's professional rejection. Maybe you've been rejected because of your age, because of your personality, because you didn't go to the right school, because you don't have the right degree, or because you wouldn't fall in line with certain standards or practices in your business or in your company, and so you got placed off the fast track of promotion, and you're just placed in this pool of stagnation. You feel rejected. Or maybe you're at the place where you are facing a sense of spiritual rejection. You feel like King David as he writes in the Psalms, God, why have you forsaken me? You feel as if God knows your heart, he knows your pain, he knows your wounds, and you're praying, and you're praying, and you're praying, and it feels as if God isn't listening. You feel unloved, unwanted. You see, rejection is our greatest scar. It is our greatest scar. We hide it well, but it is our greatest scar, and it is also our greatest control point. Because rejection is such a deep wound, one that we don't want to admit, one that we try to hide away, it controls us. We operate out of the rejection that we've experienced, that we face, and we also operate in a way that we're fearful of future rejection so it affects how we live. It is our greatest scar and it is our greatest control point. We live instead not out of a place of freedom and security, but for the approval and the acceptance of others. Notice something here. Jesus is rejected in his hometown, people he's known for over 30 years of his life. He's still outcasted. They still view him with shame. He's a scandal to them. 
His education isn't right. His family is wrong. All of this, and what does Jesus do? It says that he heals a few sick people, meaning maybe just those in the town that believed him for who he was, and then he moves on. It says he goes to the other villages to continue his ministry. This is such an important part of this passage. Jesus, when he faces rejection, he marvels, it says, at their unbelief, that they can't see him for who he is because they place all these labels upon him. They put these certain parameters around him. He marvels. He's deeply saddened by their unbelief. Don't think that this doesn't wound Jesus. It doesn't hurt him. See, Jesus felt everything that we feel yet without sin. So when he faced rejection from his friends and his family in his hometown, he felt it deeply. He marveled at their unbelief, but he moves on. He leaves the town of rejection. He doesn't stay there and say, hey, I think you have some, some misconceptions about me. He doesn't try to work for their love. He doesn't stick around and try to explain to them why they should accept him. He doesn't tell them how hurtful their opinions are of him. He moves on. And many of us, as we think about the rejection that we face, those wounds and those scars and those things that guide us, we don't leave the town of rejection. We stay in it. We sit there. We keep trying to earn the acceptance of others, the approval of others. We stay in the town of rejection. And Jesus teaches us something so simple but so important, and that is that you have to leave the town of rejection. You have to leave it. You can't stay within it. Because if you stay within your, the town of rejection, you will not discover and you will not follow your God-given purpose. You see, why does Jesus leave? It's not because he doesn't care about the people of Nazareth. He loves them. It's because Jesus is motivated by the purpose that he has. That is to preach and to teach and do the miracles of God and to usher in the kingdom and to give his life on the cross for you and for me to be buried and raised from the dead to enact the kingdom of God across the entire world. And so he leaves the town of rejection to continue forward on his purpose. And many of us, when we stay in the town of rejection, you know what we forfeit? Discovering and following our God-given purpose. Because each and every one of you in this room has a God-given purpose. Because you've been created by God, and he's given you your talents, he's given you your opportunities, he's placed you here in this city, in this room, he's given you your friends, your work, everything you have is his, given to you, and he wants you to follow your purpose, and your purpose is big. You may feel like, I don't think my purpose is very big. Well, maybe not when you judge it according to the world's standards and parameters, but when you put it into the perspective of eternity, it is very big. God did not make a mistake with you and your talents and your personality and your purpose. He has given you a purpose, and he wants you to follow it and believe that your life will echo in eternity when you do. When you seek Christ, when you seek his kingdom, when you show the love of Christ to other people, but you can't stay in the town of rejection. You can't stay there. You have to release it. See, Jesus shows us the importance of releasing rejection. Letting it go. Moving on from it. Not sitting in it. Not trying to earn it from other people. Releasing it. Now, the pain is real. And you need to process the pain. And you need to feel the pain. And not pretend like it's not real. Jesus marvels at their unbelief. He feels that pain. But you need to also not believe the lies that you're telling yourself because you've been rejected. 
You can feel the pain and process the pain and the wounds that you have, but don't believe the lies because they're not true. They're lies. Release rejection and believe, in fact, that your future is bright. You see, rejection may be our greatest scar, but Jesus is the healer of all wounds. Do you believe that? Jesus is the healer of all wounds. He was rejected so that you could find acceptance. He was rejected in his hometown. He was rejected by the religious leaders of his day. He was rejected by his friends, first Judas and then Peter. And ultimately, he was rejected by his own people who stood before him knowing he was innocent and shouted, crucify him, crucify him. Imagine how that felt. He was rejected in ways that you can't possibly imagine. And yet he was rejected so that we might find acceptance. You see, never for a moment think that Jesus doesn't empathize with the rejection that you face. He does because he was rejected for you so that you could find acceptance in him. 1 Peter 2 talks about this and says that the stone that the builders rejected, the stone that the builders scandalized, took offense at, is the cornerstone that is Christ and God's people are built upon it. You are built upon the one that was scandalized, the stone that was rejected by the builders. And you are built upon him as the chief cornerstone. You see, Jesus was scandalized so that you don't have to be scandalized. He was rejected so you don't have to live in rejection. You can find acceptance. Why? Because your cracks and your flaws are welcomed by your Savior, and God's grace binds up your wounds. Do you believe that? That you can bring your rejection to him? That you can leave it behind? That you can let go of all the things that you face? You can process it, but you can move on and discover your purpose that God has for you? Do you believe that you can bring your flaws and your cracks to your Savior and find love and find forgiveness and freedom and acceptance and find God's grace that will actually heal your wounds and mend your scars? See, that's the gospel. The gospel is that you need to release rejection and accept a new identity. You have a new identity that is accepted and a new purpose that is eternal. Listen to what 1 Peter 2 says, verse 9. This is God's declaration over you. This is so profound to me that this is how God views you and me. It says this, 1 Peter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You see, when it says that God has called you out of darkness, notice what it says there. Let me tell you who you are, Peter is saying. You're a holy nation. You're a royal priesthood. You are loved. You are forgiven. You are God's people. So let go of darkness, move out of it, and step into the light. Meaning when you know that your flaws and your cracks and your brokenness is welcomed by your Savior and God's grace binds up your wounds and Jesus was rejected, he was scandalized so that you could be accepted, that you're built upon him, 
then you can let go of darkness. You can leave the town of rejection and step into the light. See, my prayer for you and for me tonight is that would happen. It wouldn't just happen in here, but it would happen in our heart. We're actually going to participate right now in a spiritual practice of releasing rejection and taking the acceptance of Christ. I don't want it to stay here for me or for you. I want us to experience it. You see, our worship is not mental alone. We engage in whole body worship, a whole life of worship. As Jocelyn shared, that we raise our hands and surrender when we pray and when we sing. We use our mouth to sing. We write and we read and we engage all of our senses. And tonight we're going to do the same. As we realize that God's word calls us to release rejection and find acceptance. And so here's what's going to take place. In a moment, I'm going to pray for us. And the band's going to come up and they're going to play. And we're going to take several minutes for each one of us to process the rejection that we face in our life. If you received a piece of paper when you came in, you can pull that out. In front of you on the pews, there's a bunch of pens and paper as well. I want to encourage you to grab that, to have it before you. And you may think, I don't know, I'm not really big into writing or journaling. I really want to encourage each and every one of you to engage in this. I really believe in it. If you have the app, you can open that up because in the app, I've placed some questions for you to process. We're going to journal this together. And while you are journaling, I'm going to invite up our elders here and their wives. And I'm going to serve them communion. We're going to have them stationed. And I'm going to reiterate this again. But we're going to have juice on this side and wine on this side. And after you've spent some time journaling, we're going to invite you to come forward, bring that piece of paper. I'm going to be placing right here a basket. And as you bring that piece of paper forward, I want you to close it up, and I want you to rip it in half, and I want you to drop it in this basket. I want you to release the rejection that you have faced in your life, and then go to either side and take the acceptance of Christ that we believe is not only a reminder, but grace to us in the table in communion. And so we're going to take a moment now, and we're going to journal. We're going to guide you through this time together. And here are some of the questions that you'll find in the app that I want you to begin to write and to journal. How have you felt rejected? Who has rejected you? What encouragement or praise have you received but rejected? Whose approval are you seeking? What is your town of rejection? Meaning, where are you misunderstood, underappreciated, or struggling with acceptance? What is your greatest scar? So I'm going to pray for us as the band comes forward. Will you take a moment, several moments, and just journal and write? And I'll invite you forward to come take communion shortly after. Let's pray.